couple of Sundays ago, I spoke to you on Sunday evening about why we need the Holy Spirit. And this evening, I'd kind of like to return to that theme. I know last Sunday technically was Pentecost Sunday, um, but uh, being... uh, being a communion service, we kind of went a different direction, but returning to the theme of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I'd like to talk to you for a little while this evening about why we need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Why we need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Story that came out of the past that I'm sure you may have heard in one form or another During one of the epidemics of something like scarlet fever or something of that nature, there was a a particular family that had experienced that illness in their home. And when it was discovered, those who were sick were quarantined and kept away, and then the entire home was, was fumigated and cleaned out, and everything was done according to the customs of the time that could be done. There were some things that were that were completely discarded and, and, and disposed of, and other things were cleaned. And this was done throughout the entire house, except for one seldom-used closet. And it was assumed that since this was a, a seldom-used area and the doors were kept closed, that it would be safe to leave that area as it was. And so, uh, after some time, the family recovered from the illness and they returned to life as usual until a little while later when cooler weather came and a shawl or a jacket was taken from that closet and used for one of the children with the result being that the disease broke out again in that family. When we talk about fullness and fullness of the Holy Spirit, fullness in this context uh, that the Scripture speaks of is not talking about capacity or quantity, but rather we can think of it better in terms of completeness, completeness. And that is not so much the idea that God has done completely in us everything that He wants or intends to do, but it is rather the idea that we have given completely everything of ourselves over to God for Him to be in control and fill our hearts and lives completely. So we have several, several scriptures to read here, and you can follow along with me if you'd like to. John chapter 14, John chapter 14 and verses 15 through 18, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Then Acts chapter 2, we read a portion of this a couple weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound 
like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then one more passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. King James Version uses the word holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. English Standard Version says completely. Uh, Other versions say through and through every part of you. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. In the Bible, the sin problem is depicted as a two-part problem. There is both the doing or the deeds, the action of sin, and there is the nature of sin, that infection that takes a hold in our inner being. It's something that we are, that we are born with, we come into this world with. It's not our fault for having, it's only our fault if we keep it. Uh, but uh, it is a twofold problem, sin is, and it needs a twofold solution. I have found a diagram such as this to be a little bit helpful if we think about the two works of grace, of justification and sanctification. Both of these works are by grace through faith. There is no effort or works on our part that can accomplish either one of these, either our salvation, our justification, or our sanctification. But there are some distinct differences between these two, justification and sanctification. Justification deals with the legal matter of sin. Sanctification deals with actually taking away the sin in our heart. Justification has to do with us being declared right. And sanctification has to do with us being made right. Justification is done for us through Christ by faith. Sanctification is in us through the Holy Spirit by faith. Justification has to do with imputed righteousness. In other words, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. This is scriptural. It's biblical. It's the way the Bible talks about it, imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ credited to us. But if we, if we stop there, we're stopping short of what God intends for us. There is also, in sanctification, imparted righteousness. That is, we actually become righteous people. Justification has to do with positional holiness. That is our standing in Christ. Sanctification has to do with personal holiness. That is transformation where we become actually Christ-like. 
Justification has to do with the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross on behalf of sinners for their, the penalty, taking uh, the penalty of their sins upon himself. Sanctification is our identification with Christ in his death. Justification uh, is, has to do with sin's penalty being paid on our behalf. Sanctification is the breaking of sin's power in our life. So we spoke, uh, as we mentioned a couple Sundays ago, about why we need the Spirit, why we need the Holy Spirit. And there were three reasons we need the Spirit because of the temporary physical presence of Jesus. Jesus in his physical body uh, uh, could not be everywhere at the same time, but by his Holy Spirit, God can be here with us, and he can be with the people in the church across town and anywhere in this world all at the same time. He is omnipresent everywhere at the same time. We also need the Holy Spirit in our lives to steady and strengthen us to steady and strengthen us. Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit coming as a comforter or a helper. The word is paraclete or parakletos, and it is the idea of one who comes alongside to help, to steady, to sustain. We also need the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit, to apply spiritual truth to natural man. The Apostle Paul tells us in the letters to the Corinthians that natural man cannot understand or receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. And so we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of this begins simultaneously at the moment of salvation. Both justification and sanctification begin with uh, uh, the moment of the new birth. When a person comes to God for salvation and, and confesses and forsakes their sin and commits to walking with Him, there are a lot of things that happen at one time. We are justified, yes. We are adopted into God's family. We are reconciled. And we are also initially sanctified. That's not an exhaustive list, but that's a partial list of the things that happen when we are born again. And we are initially sanctified. And God's Spirit does come at that moment to inhabit, to indwell our heart. It is not as if the person who is saved but not yet entirely sanctified does not have the Spirit of God living within them. That is not the case. Otherwise, they are not one who belongs to Christ. You say, where do you find that, Pastor? Well, that we find in Romans chapter 8. And uh, let me turn to it just for a moment and, and read those, some of those words. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Skip down to verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, notice verse 9. You, however, are not in the, in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you, n- not only are you not sanctified, but you're not even a Christian if you don't have the Spirit of Christ. So this begins in salvation at the moment of the new birth. But the Bible talks about these, about these things in two different ways, different passages, different places in the Bible. And it speaks of the fact that God's Spirit is present and at work, but there is a distinction in those places where we read about God's Spirit being poured out in fullness and people being filled with the Spirit of God. So, for a few moments this evening, let's talk about why we need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And first of all, I would tell you we need the fullness of the Holy Spirit for purity of heart. For purity of heart. If you look over in your Old Testament, in Psalm 51... Uh, In uh, that psalm, Psalm 51, is David's prayer after his terrible uh, sin uh, of adultery with Bathsheba and, and, and murdering her husband to cover up his actions and all that uh, uh, accompanied that terrible time in his life until finally the prophet came to confront him and said, you are the guilty one, you're the man. And he prayed, and this is kind of a, of a record of his prayer. And in this prayer, he emphasizes the twofold need and the two-part solution or the two-part answer to the sin problem. He says, "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me.'" Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. There he speaks about being born with a nature that is inclined away from God's will and to doing what self wants. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now notice verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you've broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So even David at this time seems to recognize the need for a two-part solution to the sin problem, not simply the forgiveness of the actions that he has committed, but a need for a deeper cleansing of his heart. And the mention of the use of hyssop suggests the awareness of a serious problem that needs deep cleansing work by God. You see, it was hyssop that was used for the sprinkling of the blood of the Passover lamb over the doorposts of the house. Uh, It was hyssop that was used in uh, the cases of leprosy when the leper would come uh, to, to receive cleansing from the priest. Hyssop was used, and then also in other instances as well. But they they were it is a suggestion of a need for deep cleansing. 
In Acts chapter 15, we read uh, about Peter giving a summary of his ministry to the household of Cornelius. And in Acts chapter 15, he says, as he, uh, as he explains to the leaders of the church at Jerusalem, he explains what happened and how the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles just as he had been given on the day of Pentecost. When he summed up all that happened in verses 8 and 9, he says this, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So there's not so much an emphasis on the phenomena and everything that occurred as far as the wind and the tongues of fire and the languages and and all of that, but an emphasis on a pure and a clean heart. If you've been around holiness preaching for a while, then you will have heard this kind of an illustration before, but um, it's like trying to clean up a pig. I remember hearing my dad talk about cleaning up a pig and taking that pig and, and putting it in your bathtub and washing it and scrubbing it down good, and, and uh, you could sprinkle it with perfume and tie a bow or a ribbon around it and set that pig in your living room on your couch or your recliner and say, now there, that is a reformed pig. But if you let that pig loose, you know the thing that that pig will do, the first opportunity that it gets, it will head to the mud hole. Why? Because it is in its nature to do so. And friends, there is something about fallen human nature, the nature that we are born with, that is inclined away from God, away from doing God's will, and inclined to self-will and self-centeredness and selfishness. It is a nature inside of us that, like I heard one preacher say, it does not get religion when the rest of us gets religion. But there is a need for a deeper work, a deeper cleansing. Now, I want to be clear about this because I feel like in some people's lives, there have been misunderstandings about uh, the second work of grace that we call entire sanctification. And that is this, that it is not a magic fix. It's not a, uh, like a lightning bolt from heaven that will zap you and suddenly make you some kind of a super saint. And all of your problems will disappear and all of your struggles will go away. Doesn't necessarily happen like that. You can be both saved and entirely sanctified and still have a lot of learning and growing to do as a Christian. But the difference is in having a clean and a pure Heart. You see, there is a difference between purity and maturity. If I had understood this better when I was a younger person, it would have helped me a lot. We need 
fullness of the Holy Spirit for purity of heart. We also need the fullness of the Holy Spirit for power to serve. For power to serve. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You're familiar with this verse where Jesus is speaking to the disciples just before his ascension. And he says to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. One of the primary purposes for the outpoured presence, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, is that we might have power to accomplish the mission of God in this world. We read about men like John Wesley, and most of us are familiar with his Aldersgate experience, where he testified that his heart was strangely warmed. And, and that is the occasion where he received the assurance of salvation. But not quite a year later, on January 1st of 1739, he records in one of his journals that he was at a love feast at the Fetterlane Society with about 60 other people. And he said at about 3 a.m., how would you like to stay at church till 3 in the morning? He said that about three in the morning, the power of God came mightily upon us, and many cried out for joy, and many fell to the ground. And it is said that from that time on, Wesley's preaching was different. There was a marked change. There was power for service that had not been there before. There are men like Charles Finney, that great revivalist of the 1800s. On October 10, 1821, Charles Finney was saved in the morning, and in the evening of the same day, he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The next day, he went out, and uh, according to records, almost every person that he spoke to came under deep conviction for sin and were later saved. In fact, throughout his ministry, it was marked by the power of God's Spirit, and it is said that some places where he ministered, people came under conviction of sin simply when he entered the city. I can't imagine it was said of D.L. Moody, somebody having a conversation, talking about D.L. Moody. And someone kind of sarcastically made the remark or, or asked the question, well, does Moody have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And the response was, no, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on him. And friends, that's what makes all the difference. The fullness of the Spirit in order to have power to serve. Now, there are a couple of dangers when we think along these lines that I want us to be aware of. One of those dangers is that we would look at the experiences of others and read the stories of other people and compare them to our own life experiences and wonder, what's wrong with me? Anybody know what I'm talking about? What's wrong with me? I haven't experienced it like that. Maybe I'm missing something. And we, in those cases, might be tempted to manufacture something that looks or feels exciting in order to convince ourselves or perhaps convince others that we have this blessing, we have this gifting, this power to serve, 
and find out later that it's tied to an emotional experience and there's not much reality to what has really happened. We ought to remember that there were places that Peter and John and Paul and and really, truthfully, every minister has preached and preached under the power of the Holy Spirit, but to little or no effect. This happened even to the apostles. So it's not as if there, there is a universal experience that every time uh, we try to do something for Jesus that the power of the Spirit makes it magically uh, moving and successful. It's not like that. We ought to ask ourselves, what is our interest in the Spirit's power? Because there is a danger here as well. What is our interest in the Spirit's power? You remember the story of Simon the magician from the book of Acts, where the uh, Philip had gone to evangelize in Samaria, and they accepted Jesus, and then and then uh, Peter and John, I believe it was, went down and preached to them about the Holy Spirit. And, and Simon saw that through laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was given. And he, the Scripture says he offered them money, saying, give me also this power, so that whoever... Because, you see, Simon thought he really was something. He was pretty impressed with himself. And he had gone the way of the Jesus followers... But then when he saw this power, he thought, my, if I could do this, then people would still be pretty impressed with me. And that was his interest. And he was told, you you don't have any part of this matter. Your money perished with you. That's not what this is about. What is our interest in the Spirit's power? I've thought about this in my own life and thinking about my interest in the spirits. I've got to be honest with you and tell you that there have been times when, you know, everybody wants to feel, wants to believe that they have been successful. And our understanding is that in order to to do and be what God has called us to in this world, that we need the power of the Holy Spirit. But friends, God's Spirit will not be given to us in His fullness just so that I can feel successful. To kind of stroke my own ego, so to speak. It's not going to happen. God's Spirit will not be given so that others can look at us and be impressed with our level of spirituality or by what we have accomplished in ministry. If you wonder about your interest in the Spirit's power, I think this is a good question to ask. Are we content to have it, but be unaware of it? Jesus, help me. Would we be content to have it, but be unaware that we have it? And what I'm saying by that is not that we could have the reality of the Spirit's fullness and have the clean heart without the assurance of the, of the Holy Spirit, but I think you know what I'm trying to say, but that we could have the reality of God's Spirit working mightily, powerfully through us to impact lives, but not even know 
that it was happening. Would you be okay with that? Would I be okay with that? God help us. God help me. I want to be in that place where God is able to use me. Like the, someone said, may they, it's, I believe it's a song. May they forget the channel. May they forget the vessel and see only you. That if, if nothing, if my name is never mentioned, if your name is never mentioned, and everybody forgets that we ever existed or did anything for God or for His kingdom, but that people were moved into God's kingdom, then to God be the glory, and that's perfectly fine, and that's the way it ought to be. God's Spirit is given to us for purity of heart. It is for power to serve. Just, just real quickly, what should we expect along these lines as we think about power to serve? Um, what should we expect? Here's what I think we should expect. I don't know if you can read all this. It's coming up quick. We should expect the power to live a lifestyle in harmony with our testimony, to be able to see and utilize opportunities to share Jesus, overcoming anything that might have once been an impediment, such as shyness or feelings of inadequacy, or that could be pride or what have you, and to leave the results in the hands of God. I think that's what we can expect from the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. Moving on, I'll try to just give you the, the rest of this in the Reader's Digest version. We need the fullness of the Holy Spirit for perfected love. For perfected love. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, we read the account of the man that came to Jesus asking about the greatest commandment. And you remember that Jesus said the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Perfected love. And the question that I would ask you to consider is this, can the unsanctified Christian do this? Can the unsanctified Christian do this? You see, the trademark expression of the carnal heart, that is, even in the Christian's life that has not yet been purified of the inherited sin nature, it expresses itself in self-will, self-centeredness, selfishness. In other words, there's something inside me or inside you that wants what I want and wrestles against submitting to God's will. When we talk about perfect love, we're not talking about love without the possibility of growth. There is still the possibility of, of growth. It's, it's not that kind of perfection. When we talk about perfect love, we're not talking about being flawless in all of our actions. It's not that kind of a perfection. We'll never have that this side of eternity. When we talk about perfect love, we're not talking about something that is associated with our feelings. 
It's not associated with feelings. You see, friends, the desire in holiness and the end goal in holiness should be nothing except to love God the way that we ought to love Him. In Ephesians chapter 3, a passage that I mentioned to you this morning, the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Ephesian Christians, verse 17 of Ephesians 3, he says this, "...that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." I think a good picture of this, this idea that self will and perfect love cannot abide together. If you think about the young man, the young woman that are deeply in love and they're coming down, that young lady is is walking down the aisle to meet that young man before the preacher and to make their vows. And there's at one point in that ceremony there is a line where they say, forsaking all others as long as you both shall live. That is perfect love. It is love forsaking all others, fully devoted only to one. John Wesley said this about Christian perfection. He said, it is the humble, gentle, patient love of God and our neighbor ruling our tempers, words, and actions. The humble, gentle, patient love of God and our neighbor ruling over our tempers, words, and actions. That is Christian perfection. Finally, we need the fullness of the Holy Spirit because it is a provided necessity. It is a provided necessity. Jesus prayed for it, for his disciples and for us in John chapter 17. He said, neither pray I for these alone, but also for them who will believe on you because of their word. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, the apostle Paul writes, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. This is not something that's like ice cream with cake. This is not something that's like the when you buy a new car. I've never bought a new car, but if you've ever bought a new car, then you can get the extra special deluxe package if you want to. And being an entirely sanctified Christian where you have the fullness of the Spirit is, is not like being the extra special super deluxe model Christian. And that you can kind of, if you, yeah, you know, that's for some people. If you want to go, you know, if you kind of want to go that deep into it, then yeah, I guess that's okay. Some people do that kind of thing. It's not like that. It is a provided for necessity. So how does it take place? How does it take place? Is everybody doing okay? It's not yet 7 o'clock, so give me just a few more minutes and I'm almost done. Um, You may disagree with me about this, and that's okay, but I, I have become wary of pat formulas 
that say, this is how you receive entire sanctification. This is how you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The reason is, I have heard and read the testimonies of numerous Christians that testified to the experience and evidenced the experience in their life. And all of those, all of their experiences, now if, if we could say everyone had the exact same experience and it all happened the exact same way and A, B, C, and D, they came to the conclusion and here they were, then maybe we could say, well, yeah, here's a formula by which we can all receive this blessing. Um, I do think there are some common denominators. There are some common threads that run throughout all of those. And that's what I, that's what I recommend to you. But what I would say is don't try to follow somebody else's experience, somebody else's example. I, uh, my, my dad or my granddad, one, used to tell a story about a lady that got saved and somewhere along the way she came up to this sense that she needed something more. There just wasn't quite complete. And, and she said she didn't know what it was that she needed, and she didn't have anybody to teach her or anybody to instruct her in the way, but she simply got alone with God and read her Bible and prayed, and God led her into the experience of holiness. And it wasn't until quite some time later that she heard somebody preaching on this doctrine, and she said, that is exactly what happened to me all those years ago. Didn't know what it was called, didn't know all of the details of how it was all supposed to work. I think the first thing that's important is simply to know that you are a candidate. To know that you are a candidate. Who is a candidate? Well, sometimes I think people struggle in their Christian experience and then think, well, maybe I need to be sanctified. And try to come to God and pray for sanctification. And friends, the reality is entire sanctification is not for the person that's struggling in their Christian experience. Entire sanctification is for the person who is walking in victory in their Christian experience. It's not for the backslidden. It's not for the, it's, it's not for, now it will certainly help along those lines. But a person who is a struggling, backslidden, defeated Christian is simply not a candidate for entire sanctification. Another of the common ingredients that is an absolute requirement is full consecration. A total devotement, a total dedication of self, everything that I am, everything that I have, everything that I hope to be, everything that I ever will be, and even the unknown is totally given over to God. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. And that word there, present, is what communicates this idea of full consecration, total devotion, total devotion to God. Third, ask. That's a good idea, isn't it? If you want something, you ought to ask for it. 
Ask very clearly. Be specific. Jesus said, if good fathers know how to give gifts to their children, how much more does your heavenly Father want to give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Isn't that wonderful? Just ask. Now, this is a point at which we ought to check our motive, as I I was talking to you about a moment ago. Our motive needs to be for love and glory of God, for love of God and for the glory of God. People have said it in different ways. Some have said it's not for our enjoyment, but it is for our employment. And yes, that's absolutely true. God doesn't give us the fullness of His Spirit so we can all come together and say, whoopee, didn't, didn't we have a wonderful time? Didn't that feel great? I had some chills and, oh, that was just wonderful. Oh, it is wonderful. I, I enjoy services like that. I enjoy the moving of the Holy Spirit, but it's not given for our enjoyment. It's given for our employment so that we can have power to serve God. It's not for our happiness but for our holiness, for God to make us what He wants us to be. And then finally, and I'm not sure why, but this seems to be the hardest part for so many people, is simply to receive by faith. To receive by faith. Some people seem to experience this as a long, drawn-out struggle and battle Can I encourage you this evening, friends, if that's been your experience, don't be afraid, don't be disillusioned, don't doubt, but simply keep trusting God and do everything that He leads you to do. Keep trusting. Some people, it comes easily. You see, the reality is, as I heard uh, Dr. Avery used to say, it's not in the struggle, but it's in the surrender. It's not in the struggle, it's in the surrender. And I'll close with this. uh, uh, These words, that uh, song that Larnell Harris used to sing, it's not in trying, but in trusting. It's not in running, but in resting. It's not in wondering, but in praying that we find the strength of the Lord. And I'm thankful, friends, for the reality of the Holy Spirit in my life, and I'm thankful for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Praise God.